we ran it on QI a few years ago. Yeah. Um, which was, there's no such thing as a fish. Yeah, there's no such thing as a fish. No, seriously, it's in the Oxford Dictionary of Underwater Life. It says it right there, first paragraph, no such thing as a fish. Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. Once again, we've gathered around a microphone to discuss our favourite facts from the last seven days. My name's Andy Murray, and I'm joined by three other QI elves. Their names are James Harkin, Molly Oldfield, and on fact-checking duty today, Anna Chazinski. We also have a special guest with us today, whose name is Mark Abrahams. And for those of you who don't know him... Mark is the founder of the Ig Nobel Prizes, which is a series of awards given out every year for pieces of research that first make you laugh and then make you think. So, as an example, this year's Probability Prize went to a team of scientists for making two related discoveries. First, that the longer a cow has been lying down, the more likely that cow will soon stand up. (laughs) And second, that once a cow stands up, you cannot easily predict how soon that cow will lie down again. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, Mark. Hello, thank you for inviting me to your elf cast. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming along. Uh, I'm delighted to be visiting your country from my native home of America. Uh, the, the Ig Nobel show is touring the UK at the moment, isn't That's it? Right. And Denmark and Sweden. Oh my goodness, okay. So listeners in Denmark and Sweden, look out for that. So let's kick off with fact number one, which is from you, Mark. Fact number one is that a number of years ago... Some plastic surgeons in Belgium, they had a young Belgian man who came to them wanting to have surgery performed to make him look more like his idol, the singer Michael Jackson. This is a technique first used on Michael Jackson himself. Exactly. (laughs) There are lots of interesting questions. Medically, it's very interesting. It's a difficult piece of surgery. And in this medical report, the surgeons proudly describe exactly how they did it and say that they succeeded Wow, that's wow. amazing. When was this? This was about 1997. Do they have to do special like thing where their skin got whiter and whiter and whiter as well, like Michael Jackson? That's, well, these were plastic surgeons, and when they write a report in a medical journal, they talk about just one specific thing they were doing. Wouldn't it be terrible to get the surgery done and then discover that you can't dance or sing anywhere near as well as Michael Jackson could because nobody could it. for I a start would. and that's where robotics <laughs> could enter the picture right. and moonwalking I mean you must be able to perfect moonwalking if you practice it for long enough don't you think? yeah but moonwalking was not the only dance move that Jackson did but one of his main ones come on it was we amazing. Did, <laughs> he was an amazing dancer. We did on QI that it wasn't invented by Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Marking. It was invented that? by Bill Bailey, right? Yeah, it was an old old um, guy called Bill Bailey, not our Bill Bailey, the other one. And um, also by the mannequin bird. Do you remember that video? That yeah. we the showed? red cat mannequin? Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. brilliant. This brilliant that. bird that has a mating ritual that kind of climbs up a, a branch and then it slides back down <laughs> like Michael Jackson. We always see on QI when we're doing our research, Dolly Parton or Charlie Chaplin came third in a Charlie Chaplin or a Dolly Parton lookalike competition. I don't know if any of those is true. Have you ever found any evidence that it's true? Well, Chaplin was so famous in his time that if you were going to have a lookalike competition for anyone, it probably would be him. Yeah, but him coming third? Did I make this up or did Hitler lose a lookalike competition? You're thinking of Charlie Chaplin. (laughs) (laughs) Hitler came third in a Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition. I do have a true example. Graham Greene, the author, once entered a competition of writing like Graham Greene and came second, which is fantastic. I think it was in The New Statesman. 
But speaking of um, like uh, Hitler and whoever, is it true all the stuff about dictators getting lookalikes for themselves? Um, dictators lookalikes? I don't know much about them. Well, I know one thing is that um, there was a guy who looked just like Saddam Hussein and he got um, kidnapped or attempted a kidnap from um, some guys in Egypt because they wanted to make a porn movie um, of him. No. Yeah. He got away, but that was his claim. Because he didn't want to be in a porn movie, or...? Some people have no ambition, do they? <laughs> What's his name? Kim, Kim Jong-un? How do you say it? Kim Jong-un. He has made everyone in Korea have the same haircut as him. And I, there was a story about how one di- if One Direction wanted to perform in Korea, they were going to have to have their haircut like him. Did you see that in the news? I heard it on the radio the other day. One Direction wanted to perform in North Korea. Yeah. Now, I don't know a lot about the touring circuits and stadiums of North Korea, but I think that's the You think they're not, not likely to well, want to go? Yeah. I can tell you that I'm pretty sure about this. I think North Korea has the world's largest sports stadium. I'm sure it has. It's got the world's largest everything and nothing else. The, uh, the One Direction thing was an April Fool's. <laughs> Loads of reports are coming out saying that he's forcing all men at university in North Korea to have his hair cut, Kim Jong-un, but I, I, it seems they're all coming from South Korean media network. I would suspect it's not true. But apparently, so it used to be that men were allowed to choose from 10 different prescribed haircuts. But now men have to pick his, apparently. So let's go back to, um, to something <laughs> to about... Surgery. To surgery, yeah. I remember I found this thing um, last year and I passed it on to you, Mark, which was mm. the gynecomastia in the German Ministry of Defence. Um, German soldiers have been marching, hitting themselves on the chest with their guns to such an extent that their breasts have been growing and they've had to have reduction surgery. That's it's amazing. A, it's a paper by Bjorn Dirk Krappel and um, within six years a total of 211 patients underwent surgery in um, Germany. Wow. It's quite a lot, that. That's yeah. a lot, yeah. Massively. Yeah. Just banging their gun against the chest. Yeah, it forces the, the um, tissue to grow. Oh, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it didn't happen to everybody, but it happened to quite a few. Yeah. Right. Talking of boob jobs, there's a real life uh, Barbie and Ken. Oh, really? And Ken has had over a hundred surgeries to look more like Ken, whereas Barbie's only had a boob job, um, and she does the rest with lighting and really good makeup. And apparently, when they met, they had a big fight. Ken got angry with Bake Barbie because he said, I've spent a fortune and I had a hundred surgeries, and all you've done is one lame boob job. <laughs> totally plastic, plastic yeah. surgery. Yeah. I did try to get in touch a few years ago with these surgeons, Dr. Momertz, Dr. Abelous, and Dr. Grop. I thought that they would be happy to talk with mm. somebody, even the kind of journalist I am, who was interested but not necessarily adoring. They were no longer eager to discuss this. Oh. They must be made fun of a little bit, I guess, by some other people. Fortunately, even if they're not popular anymore, they have a surefire way of disguising themselves in public. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's move on to fact number two, which comes from Molly. So last week, a few of us went on an elf expedition to the British Museum, and we uh, went to the Viking exhibition, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about Viking. The largest Viking ship ever found was discovered when they renovated the Viking Ship Museum. Brilliant. Actually, underneath it, or...? They were basically extending the museum, and they dug down into the fjord literally outside the museum, and there they found the, the longest Viking ship ever found... And a whole bunch of other ships, too. That's so convenient, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And underneath that... Even underneath more those ships. ships. They found another museum, <laughs> which was upside down, and it was a mirror. Never mind. Do you remember that guy who got um, buried upside down atop his horse? They buried him upside down. He was sat on his horse upside down, and the reason he did it is because he believed that when the world ended, everyone would get sucked up to um, heaven. So if he was upside down, he'd be the right way round. Brilliant. Have you found it, Anna? 
Yes, it was in Surrey, I think. A few miles away, a horse is buried upside down too, and the National Trust says, you might think this is Major Peter Labillier's horse, as in the guy mm. who is buried upside down, but it's actually just a big coincidence. Oh. That is a staggering coincidence. It is though. odd, isn't it? Yes, but if you want to see it, you can go to Box Hill and check out the grave. He was buried in 1800. His gravestone says, Major Peter Labellier, age 75, eccentric resident of Dorking. <laughs> sort of implies he knew what he was doing. It's a, it's a good epitaph to have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Vikings, we should, we should get yes. back to Vikings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had these things called hogback stones in the exhibition, which were huge uh, stones. They're, they're curved, and they are covered with Viking inscriptions. And they think what happened was the Vikings saw people here, like Christians, <laughs> burying their dead and putting gravestones. And so they copied them with their hogback stones and kind of made them Scandi style with Viking ins- things all over them, decoration wow. all over them. What was that thing? about Viking coins and what inscriptions they had on them. Yeah, the most common written inscription appearing anywhere in Viking Scandinavia was... What do you think? Well, something about Hrothgar, angry face and his sword or something like this. Similar. <laughs> 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 um, it was actually, there is no god but Allah alone. He has no partner. No way. What? No. How? Pretty weird, huh? Because at the beginning of the Viking Age, the Islamic world stretched far and wide from Spain to Central Asia and they used a single coinage throughout the empire. And the Vikings obviously bought these coins back with them when they went off on their travels. They found some of these coins because they've sort of scrub- scrubbed out the inscription and put ah. Thor's hammer across the top. <laughs> wow. They were probably protesting outside the Viking embassy all over the Middle East. <laughs> and there was also some really good Viking graffiti, which was like pretty basic. They tended to uh, graffiti ships all over stuff. Wow. Mm. Viking graffiti sounds like it would almost all be good. They're like the teenagers of European history, aren't they? <laughs> they are. Yeah. Um, and oh, also these skulls, which had they, they filed down their teeth. Oh, yeah. more fearsome. These particular Vikings just maybe were the equivalent then of this young Belgian man who wanted to have surgery to make him look like Michael Jackson. I just want to look like Odin, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people having one eye removed so they look like Odin. MC Thor's hammer. <laughs> I really like the thing, though, about finding something in a really convenient place. That's such a great story about mm. the ship underneath the ship museum. Yeah. And yeah. I like this thing about um, how they found the new species of bug in the Natural History Museum's garden. Oh yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, they'd, they'd found this um, bug in the garden, they picked it up, they thought, oh, I've never seen that before. They checked against uh, the 28 million specimens they have in the Natural History Museum and it didn't fit any of them. That's fantastic. How but... long does it take to check against 28 million specimens? <laughs> oh God, that poor work experience boy. He thought, I'm going to have a nice easy week at the Natural History Museum. So, Frank, could you just... Um... <laughs> yeah, there was a woman who did the same thing in Britain somewhere, in her garden and she found something like 27 species of wasps. Uh, Ichneumon? Yeah, Ichneumon. Yeah, yeah. They're the ones who parasitise eggs, don't they? Yeah. I have a fun fact about them, which is that when Alfred Kinsey, uh, the great sex researcher... No, it wasn't Ichneumon. It was a, it was gall wasp he was an expert on, but he travelled the length and breadth of the USA finding these, categorising them, because he was a maniac collector. He, he wanted to have the biggest collection of everything in the world. Parcel them up, label them, and then send them back to the university... And a lot of them hatched on the way. And so the people were constantly opening packages of live, crawling wasps. You know, love Alfred. I love that about Alfred Kinsey, that um, he got into sexology a bit later on in his career, and his wife said, I don't see much of Alfred since he got interested in sex. (laughs) (laughs) What about that other thing that they found in York, which was the coprolite, the Viking poo? Do you remember that one? Oh, we yeah. did that on QI. Did they find that under a Viking museum? A Viking poo museum. 
<laughs> uh, no, it was in the Lloyd's Bank when they were excavating oh, wow. the cellars there. It was, uh, Maybe really... that had been uh, deposited with the bank for safekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> Quite, yeah. I don't think they let you deposit things like that in the bank. Uh, the discoverer of the poo, Andrew Bones Jones, commented, This is the most exciting piece of excrement I've ever seen. In its own way, it's as valuable as a crown jewels. Andrew Burns turns that man with no sense of priority whatsoever. <laughs> um, I was looking up Thank Viking you, names and I found because they have the by names, you know, the, like Harold Bluetooth. Well, Bluetooth is where we get the Bluetooth from mobile phones from, isn't it? We is get it? it's named after him, I think. Right. Harold Bluetooth. Yeah. Seriously. No. Why? I'm going completely off memory here, but it might have been that it was Nokia who did it, and they. they uh, the company. Yeah. And Nokia used to make gas masks. Ah. In fact, they supplied them to the Finnish army until about 1995. I was at a comedy show the other night, and um, um, the host was asking, so where do you work? And he, the, the guy said, oh, I, I work at uh, Nestle. And then he said, okay, but which, which bit do you work in? He said, I work in the cat food division of Nestle. <laughs> Nobody in the audience knew that Nestle had a cat food division. Yeah. He obviously didn't say the cat food bit at the start because he wants them to think he works in a chocolate company. Yeah. He says that so that they all think he's Willy Wonka. And then when they delve a bit further, it's like, oh, cat food Willy Wonka, not so good. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of thing about uh, pet food. Most of the work over the years for the companies that sell a lot of dog food, most of the research work was to come up with a dog food that would produce reliable output from the dog because that's what matters. Reliable output? People believe solids are nicer than liquids. Oh, yeah. there, was a, well, there was a dog poo lottery in Taiwan where to get a ticket for the lottery, you had to turn up with a bag of dog poo. About 2,000 people turned up. It was a runaway success. Mm-hmm. Oh. And the city was clean in a day. And then someone won, I don't know what the prize was, maybe about 1,000 pounds. But... 1,000 bags of dog poo. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Maybe a dog. <laughs> I really like that Taiwanese city officials eventually had to say, like release a statement saying, the city simply cannot afford to keep exchanging dog poo for gold. <laughs> Seems like strong economic reasoning there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Andrew Bones Jones would disagree, of course. He'd exchange the Lloyd Bank copyright for the Crown Jewels, but. <laughs> <laughs> So the next fact is from me, and it is this one. The tobacco hornworm uses extremely bad halitosis to prevent predators from eating it. Oh, I ah. love the tobacco hornworm. <laughs> <laughs> so I found this in the Smithsonian magazine because I was trying to, I was doing uh, lungs research for the L series and I sort of got distracted and started reading about breath and bad breath. And oh. this is an animal which has such bad breath that other predators think it's actively poisonous. They have actually filmed a tobacco hornworm and one of these spiders coming towards it. Somehow researchers disabled this gene so that it couldn't give off the tobacco-y smell and the spider just came towards it and went to eat it. Uh, I like the thing about animals using different ways for um, defence. Like Hmm. the hagfish, remember that guy that we did? They create an inordinate amount of slime and that's supposed to be a way of getting rid of predators. Mm. If you pick up a hagfish, it will slime all over you and then it basically falls out of your hands and it's disgusting. The worst thing about it is that there is a danger that the hagfish will suffocate in its own slime. Oh dear. Oh, wow. The Texas horned lizard shoots blood out of its eyes to get rid of predators. And there's a crazy video which we can oh, post up. Amazing. It can squirt blood five feet and the blood has got a foul-tasting chemical in it as well. So it's, yeah, um, another thing Texans are proud of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it can release a third of its blood supply doing this, so it's kind of a, quite an exhausting thing for it That's... to do. So it only does it in so extreme measures. So it's actually measures. its blood? Yeah, out oh. of its eyes. Blood... 
for one animal is almost always food for some other animal. Yeah. So yeah. maybe it's it's a food source that's distracting everything. Oh, it could right. well be. The predator just goes straight for the blood. Yeah. Turkey vultures do the same thing, which is where they, if they're very full after a meal and they're approached by a predator, they throw up on the ground saying, okay, well, rather than eating meat, you can just have everything I've just eaten, and the, the bird flies away. There's a bird called the Eurasian Roller. Uh, the chicks vomit over themselves to scare people away. I do that. Do you? If you're on the train and you need the seats next to you to be clear... <laughs> vomit over yourself. Or you could do what the potato beetle does and cover yourself in your own excrement. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, Mark, do you know this, um, do you know this paper um, called... Um, farting as a defense against unspeakable dread. I do. <laughs> I thought you uh, might. The, the author was given an Ig Nobel Prize oh, for gosh, that. Her name is Mara Sidoli. I never met her, but we corresponded. Oh, she yeah. was Italian. She lived in Washington, D.C. She was really pleased to be getting recognition for this paper. This was a case report about a very small boy, maybe four years old. Whenever this boy became very distressed, he would begin farting. She was a good writer, Mara Sidoli was, Dr. Sidoli, and she describes exactly what this little kid was doing and the effect on the room and how she spent weeks and months talking with him and trying to calm him down so he no longer did this, and she was successful. Um, Is it to drive people away? That's what she felt. It says that um, he enveloped himself in a protective cloud of familiarity against the dragon. Familiarity? Yeah. Yeah. I've oh. never heard it called that before. Sorry, darling, there's a bit of familiarity in the room. <laughs> <laughs> the details of it read in passages like a battle, a very personal battle between wow. she, the older woman psychiatrist, and he, the child, where she would say oh. something and then he would respond with a cloud of fart. But eventually, eventually they came to an understanding. She was like, I'll leave and you can just get on with it. That was amazing. Um, Mark, do you find that those are the most interesting papers to you personally? I have many favourites. What makes something pleasing to me is something that I never expected. That's, That's really the quality. One of the ones which really sticks in my head is... Exiting a building, an informal look. By which John we, Trinkus, yeah. Which is about whether people, given the choice of an open door and a closed one, how many of them gravitate towards the open door, how many stubbornly stay on their path and open the closed door instead. I just thought it was a he masterpiece. He went to the doorway of a large building in New York City and he stayed there for hours simply taking notes. I believe it was a couple years later he repeated the experiment to see what had changed. <laughs> he tended to do this. He got obsessions. He, he would write reports to amuse himself. He wasn't trying to, to convince anybody that right. these things were important. He did this really to, to relieve his frustrations. If something annoyed him, He saw something in his daily life that annoyed him, that kept happening. At some point, he would decide to be amused by it, and he would go with a piece of paper and a pen and sit there for several hours and count, simply count. How many people do this annoying thing and how many don't? I had a few hours free in Ueno Station in Tokyo at the end of last year, and I decided to count how many people were wearing medical masks. Oh, yeah. Because in Japan, if you have a cold or a cough, it's considered polite to wear one of the masks. Um, Especially if you're a hagfish. <laughs> and the answer was really annoying because it was a perfectly neat number. So there was, it was 110 people out of 1,100 people. Uh, wow, you counted 1,100 yeah. people. Wow. That was very... I, was, I, I had about an hour and a half, and I just decided everyone who passes a particular point. <laughs> Professor Trinkus is now in his 80s. He's slowing down. He's publishing at a far slower rate. Well, if he wants a successor, I will go and count things. That's anyway. <laughs> you 
<laughs> just could become the new Trinkus. Trinkus too. Okay, let's go back to um, to bad breath. I found this it's quite weird. The Welsh law. Um, in medieval law was quite unusual in that um, it was not too difficult for wives to divorce their husbands usually that's quite a difficult thing in most laws um, usually if you got divorced as a woman you would um, struggle to get your fair share of whatever was in the marriage the money and the, the property and whatever but there are a few different reasons that you could get it money that you um, that you were owed neglect leprosy or bad breath. <laughs> if it's a family where the wife prepares the food, she just puts ah, garlic, garlic in her <laughs> husband's food. Did they have garlic in those go. days in Wales? Because you found out that thing, didn't you, Andy? Yes. I'm in the process of trying to find out exactly when garlic and leeks got to Wales. This has caused a little series. bit of controversy <laughs> in the QI offices. That's okay, I'll, I'll get it. We've covered, have we covered Bad Breath on the show? We did about how it was mostly uh, invented by Listerine. Because Listerine was originally sold as a surgical antiseptic, uh, and then it was just changed to be marketed as a mouthwash. I think it wasn't, it might have been used to clean floors, but at, in the risk of a lawsuit, I'm going to say maybe at that one. Um, oh, Anna, do you have something for us? Listerine was definitely sold as floor cleaner before the 1920s when it realised it was a mouthwash. I think you can say that universities have released publications that say that it was also sold as a cure for gonorrhea or chapped lips. Um, neither of these things was none of these things were very successful. The floor, the floor cleaner thing would maybe tie in with the five second rule. The idea that if you drop food on the floor and it's there for less than five seconds, it's safe to eat. Mm. There was a paper that just came out and, and it confirmed what an American high school girl had done a decade earlier that we gave an ignoble prize oh. to. If it, it depends on the floor and the food. If the mm. floor is clean and it's, right. it's not sticky, <laughs> probably no problem. If it's sticky food and Whoa. the floor hasn't been clean for a while, if there's been... Compromise uh, on it or that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, no Listerine around. Yeah. And it's custard. Yeah. You're not going to want to well, think it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move to fact number four now, which this week comes from James. Okay, uh, my fact is, you could have fallen asleep up to five times during this podcast and not known about it. Um, That's how, so how can that be? Okay, I've been reading a book this week by Richard Wiseman. Uh, it's just come out. It's called Night School. Uh, I'm currently 30% of the way through, according to my Kindle app. <laughs> and um, he was talking about these things called micro-sleeps. Hmm. And these are temporary episodes of sleep which may last for a fraction of a second or up to 30 seconds where you would fail to respond to some arbitrary sensory input. And it's like being asleep for a very short amount of time. And he talks about this experiment. Um, it was a reporter called Ron Claiborne from ABC who uh, stayed awake for 32 hours. Um, they connected him to a device that measured his brain activity and set him driving on a track for two hours. Oh, God. <laughs> and when they looked at his brain activity, according to their study, uh, they found that he'd taken more than 20 micro-sleeps during his drive. Wow. Yeah. Does this go on all day long, even um, in normal times, or is it only during <laughs> times of uh, great it, sleep deprivation? Yeah, it happens mostly with sleep deprivation. There was a programme on Channel 4 called, I think it was called Shattered, several years ago, and it was a reality show where the premise was, you have to sleep stay awake for 10 days oh, I know and you could be ev ev evicted for having a micro sleep but I think the the limit they put on it there was 10 seconds of being oh. asleep do um, they monitor their brains but uh, yeah. the science of this is really like it's difficult to work out isn't it Mark there's lots of science there are lots of branches of science lots of fields and some of them are much iffier than others simply because it's really difficult to measure this stuff 
reliably. Try to figure out your own sleep, anything yeah. about your own patterns of sleep. It's very, very difficult. If you're going to measure something, and what exactly do you measure? Yeah. You, know, you can talk about it and it sounds great, but when you actually have to sit down and do it, what exactly are you measuring? Even with these micro things, everything about sleep is like that. So there are a bunch of sleep researchers around the world and they work very hard, but it's hard for them to be sure that almost anything that they're telling people really is reliably the story of yeah. sleep. Yeah. It's, at this point, it's all good stories with a little bit of data. But when you get down to something like uh, claiming that, well, people dream 30% of the night, how do you really know? I think people can dream outside REM sleep, which is was thought previously to be the benchmark for when you were dreaming. Yeah, and so yeah, we yeah. don't know that it's, either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, all this stuff is real. It's just very, very... The people who do it are, are trying to measure things that are really difficult to measure. So they're yeah. trying to do something really you know, commendable. Yeah. Just going back to your thing about Shattered. Yeah. Um, there was a guy um, in America called... He was a DJ called Trip. I can't remember his first name. And in 1959, he um, tried to stay awake for um, eight days, I think it was, and do his radio show and see how it would affect him. And um, after about four or five days, he started seeing mice running around the studio, which weren't there. He would see uh, spiders coming out of his shoes, and he thought his desk was on fire. Wow. And when a doctor came to um, look after him, he thought he was an undertaker, yeah, coming to take him away and bury him That's upside insane. down on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> but there was another guy, there was a student called uh, Randy Gardner, and this was a few years later Randy in 1964. Gardner. He tried to set a new world record um, for staying awake, um, and he did it for a few days, a few days, a few days. And by the end, he was also hallucinating. He thought he was a black American football player. He was white, but he right. thought he was a black American football player. And when his friends started saying, no, you're not a black American football player, he started calling them racist. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The um, British Department of Transport says that 20% of accidents on motorways are sleep-related. Exxon Valdez, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, all of them had people who were quite sleep-deprived at the controls, and I think, suspect that's not a coincidence. Yeah. I have a fact to drag it completely down market. Uh, <laughs> impotence can be measured by... Um, it's quite tricky because sometimes it's psychological and sometimes it's physical. Mm -hmm. So um, one method of testing is to test whether people get erections as they sleep. And in the 20th century, one method of testing this was to seal a perforated strip of postage stamps around the penis at the base and see if the stamps tore during the night. That's a good idea. It's a brilliant idea. <laughs> it's low-cost science. Yeah. If you're turned on by the Queen's face, that's good. <laughs> this is a weird thing. According to This is a paper called Dreaming, Dreaming and Sexuality. It's quite an old one, 1966, by a guy called Fisher, or a woman called Fisher, I'm not sure. Um, they found that erections happen um, when you're dreaming, even in the most mundane of dreams. It doesn't have to be a sexual dream for you to get an erection. Just now, dreaming it, about your mum doing the washing up. Or the queen. <laughs> no, no. But, um, yeah, I mean, right. again, that, I'm not sure what their methodology was, but that's, that was their findings. Amazing. Um, Mark, you really like, I, I know, you like uh, patents, don't you? I do. Um, I found this... Not each and every one. No, no, but the, the <laughs> amusing ones. I found um, a patent for inducing sleep from 1885. This was by Fanny Paul. It was pretty simple. It basically, it was a piece of wood or, or leather. Put it around your neck, it would stop the blood flow to the brain and it would make you sleep. And um, it said, it thereby reduces the activity of the brain in order that sleep may ensue. Oh, God. That's and you would just tighten it and tighten it until you fell asleep. Oh, I'd love to see details of that, James. Yeah, I'll send it on. Anna, do you have anything on sleep for? 
for us? Uh, not a whole lot from that section. I feel like you guys covered it all. I can yeah. tell you that um, in that program, Shattered, that I also remember, and it seems like it wouldn't be allowed to be put on now, um, they all had various amusing hallucinations. One of the runners-up believed he was Prime Minister of Australia. The winner thought she was in a tube station the whole time, but two of them became convinced that their clothes had been stolen, which I think is kind of interesting, that two people had the same um, delusion or hallucination. <laughs> Okay, that's our podcast done for another week. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with any of us, you can do so on Twitter. James is at Eggshaped. Mark is at Mark Abrahams. Molly is at Molly Oldfield. Anna is on the very brink of joining Twitter, but in the meantime, you can get through to her on at Quikipedia, which is the official QI account, and I'm at Andrew Hunter M. Also, if you go to our website, which is qi.com slash podcast, we're going to be putting up a whole lot of extra stuff, extra links, articles, videos, all kinds of things. And you'll also be able to see the details of Mark's book, which has just been published, and it's called This Is Improbable 2. We'll be back next week with another podcast, and until then, bye!